This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, chefs. This is Chef's PSA Podcast. I'm your host, Andre Natera. On today's episode, we're going to talk about how times are changing. Stay tuned. Okay, so before we get into the show, a quick update. I'm still doing my chef in residence. I got four more weeks at Tilly's at Camp Lucy in Dripping Springs, Texas. So if you're in the area and you want to come try the food, come out. We'd love to have you. It's been fun being back in the kitchen. Knocked off all the rust. I did a podcast about kitchen rust. I think that's pretty much done. Now I'm back in the grind. The food is getting consistently better. As I talked about in another podcast, I'm a big believer in rapid prototyping. Every day we have a pre-shift meeting, we talk about what we could do better. And then every day we have a post-shift meeting to talk about what we could do to improve. So minor adjustments are always made every day. A little bit of this, let's cut the chives finer. Let's work on that. Let's add a little gastric to this, add a little more acid to that. This is what I recommend to chefs is every day you should be constantly refining and constantly critiquing for improvement. Anyway, that's just random advice. Number two, if you want to support the show, you know what to do. Go to chefspsa.com. You could get all the books there, including the free eBooks, which again, they're free. You should get them. But if you want a tip on the free eBooks, I'm not opposed to that. And for those of you that have, it's greatly appreciated. If you're a new chef, you want to get Line Cook Survival Manual or How Not to Be the Biggest Idiot in the Kitchen. If you're new into leadership, culinary leadership fundamentals is a good place to start. Or Bad Sue, Good Chef kind of answers all those questions that you have, the anxiety that's going through your mind as a new chef. Kitchen Art of War is a little bit more advanced, strategic thinking. It's a little bit more of a difficult read. It's written in the style of Sun Tzu. So if you like that style of book, that's a good read because I don't know of any other culinary books that are written in that style. So for my philosopher chefs out there, that's the one you want. You can also get the merch. It's hoodie season, hoodie weather. Go get a hoodie. Go get a happy cook hat. Go get some t-shirts. Go get a magic chef juice water bottle or line cook water bottle. People ask, what's line cook water? Who knows what line cook water is? It's probably not water though. The books are also available in Spanish and Italian. So those are translated. So you could get them in multiple languages. So you could get one for everybody in your kitchen. You have no excuses. Get your kitchen better. You don't have a manual. This is your manual. But we digress. The topic at hand, times are changing. I did a podcast a while back titled, Is the Culinary Ship Sinking? Got a lot of DMs on it and my wheels have been turning because I didn't necessarily have any answers for it. I just wanted to point out some of the things that we're going through as an industry. But that's current what we're going through. I think it's important to talk a little bit about the history of our industry and how this whole thing started. And I want to go back to when I was just entering the industry and how different it is to the point where I became an executive chef and how different it is. 
and even talk about some things that my chefs told me about how different it was when they were cooks. Some of the trends that I noticed earlier on that I think today are coming true, and maybe it'll help us understand where we're going in the future. So let's go back and let's tell a little bit of a story. When I was in culinary school, so this is 1995, I went to culinary school. I was already thinking about cooking in 1994. I was just getting into the industry. By 1995, I'm in Portland, Oregon, the Western Culinary Institute, AKA Le Cordon Bleu is what it transitioned to while I was there in school. And back then there weren't many culinary programs. You would look in the back of Bon Appetit magazine and see ads for the Culinary Institute, the Western Culinary Institute, California Culinary Academy, Scottsdale Culinary Academy, Johnson & Wales, but that was pretty much it. Culinary Institute at that time really was only New York. I don't believe St. Helena campus was open. I'm pretty sure it was just the New York CIA campus. And culinary school was a luxury. It was very different back then. I think if you were going to culinary school, you were almost guaranteed a career in cooking. And when I first started cooking, one of my first jobs in a professional kitchen, like I worked in a bakery and I worked in I worked a couple of days at McDonald's. But when I got into my first real kitchen, I was in Portland, Oregon. I was going to school full-time and I was working full-time. And back then, most of your chefs were European, at least the chefs that you wanted to work for. Most of them were European, either Austrian, German, French, Italian. There was a big mystique around this European pedigreed chef in the U.S. And most of your high-end restaurants at the time, not all of them, but the majority of them were in high-end hotels, luxury hotels, and country clubs. A lot of hotels back then had what they would call the specialty restaurant. So a hotel, for example, might have a casual restaurant, the three meal a day that serves breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then they would have the specialty restaurant, which was dinner service only, where they would have some European chef leading the brigade. The food was very similar across the board. It was that classic Escoffier cooking, a lot of table side presentations, the Caesar salad made table side, the cherries Jubilee, the bananas foster, the steak Diane, the entrecote de Bordelais. A lot of this was finished at the table, carving at the table, prepared table side. There was much more theater there. Plates would arrive with a cloche on top. There would be a moment of reveal that customers would wait for. Ooh, what's under the dome? Everyone would get the plate sat in front of them. There'd be a moment of anticipation. The cloche comes off. Boom, you got a chicken cordon bleu. Or... This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. <laughs> lobster thermidor, whatever it may be. But it wasn't as varied of cuisine as it is now. Even back then, it was hard to find shallots in kitchens. The first time I had seen a shallot was in culinary school. Japanese restaurants weren't even that popular. I'd never had sushi until I was about 22 years old. That's when I learned how to eat with chopsticks. So a lot of this stuff, unless you were living in the Bay Area and exposed to that or, or New York City, some of the, some of the bigger markets, 
most of the United States was pretty much dominant continental cuisine, as it was called at that time. And as I mentioned, most of the chefs were European. Now, the Kitchen Brigade was usually the executive sous chefs or the chef de cuisines, sous chefs, the senior sous chefs, were usually people that had some sort of culinary degree. And a lot of times at the more high-end places, they had to have a specific culinary degree. So it didn't matter that you went to culinary school. It also mattered which culinary school did you graduate from. Did you graduate from CIA or Johnson & Wales? A lot of times back then, the chances of you moving up were much quicker. I remember the first kitchen I got in, the head chef and the exact sous and the sous were the only ones that had formal culinary training. The rest of the culinary staff did not. Most of the people working in the kitchens were your career cooks, people that came into it, immigrants, people that really didn't fit in elsewhere in society, so they fit in kitchens. Anthony Bourdain talks a lot about this in his book, The Immigrant Worker from Latin America. That was what you saw in a lot of the kitchens. So the fact that I had a culinary school degree, right away, chef tapped me on the shoulder and said, we need to start preparing you to become a sous chef. Because most kitchens back then, if you had one person with a culinary degree, they were usually fast-tracked to management. Obviously, that changed with time. But going back to the style of food, there were other styles. It wasn't just continental cuisine. There was also big emergence of Southwest cuisine. Dean Farron, Mark Miller, Stephen Piles, Robert Del Grande. They were making waves in the South. Out in New York, you had chefs coming up like Daniel Belude, Jean-Georges. A lot of these chefs were starting to make a name for themselves on the East Coast, on the West Coast. You had, of course, Alice Waters doing her thing, doing that the very early farm-to-table movement. Wolfgang Puck, Jeremiah Tower, Emeralds just starting to come up at this time. You had emerging chefs cooking really interesting food at that time, like Ming Tsai, where no one was thinking about that East meets West fusion. It was blowing people's minds. Roy Yamaguchi's coming out with Roy's, doing the, the fusion cuisine out of Hawaii, and it was the hottest thing at the moment. But that was about a handful of chefs. Everyone else was pretty much doing the same thing. When you were in culinary school and you'd ask your instructors, where should I work upon graduation? The answer you were getting back then is much different than the answers you're probably getting today. Today, they're telling you go work in a top restaurant. A lot of times in primary or secondary markets like Chicago, Portland, New Orleans is an upcoming market, Nashville, Austin. Back then, it was you wanted to work in LA at Spago or you wanted to work in New York for Danielle or at Le Cirque. Again, times are different. If you even look at the food back then, the food that was served in the top restaurants in the mid-90s would not pass in style and technique today because technique has gotten so much sharper over the course of time. But as I was saying, when your chef would advise you, where are you going to go work after culinary school, they would normally recommend that you work in a high-end country club or the specialty restaurant in a hotel, or they used to tell us to go work at the Playboy Mansion, things like that. Like It was just different. And the reason you wanted to work in a lot of these places was because the American Culinary Federation had a strong hold on dining in America. It was very important to get that certified executive chef, certified master chef, European pedigree. So you wanted to work under these chefs so you could learn that classic style Escoffier cooking. You wanted to learn how to make the chauffeur and work in the garde manger and make the show mirrors that they would put on the buffets. You, you needed to learn all that. Those were the places that people aspired to work. Obviously, you don't even see some of that stuff anymore. I'm glad that I came up in that era because I do not a flute a mushroom and my tour day is still pretty good. 
I could carve the hell out of a watermelon still, I think. Anyway, stuff that you don't see. But I came up in that era where you were exposed to a lot of that. The age of information was different. If you wanted to learn something, you were picking up a book, you were reading it. You were going to Barnes & Noble when a new book was coming out just to see what the recipes were. And back then, the recipe books were not as good as they are today. You had Charlie Trotter coming out with beautiful cookbooks. But really what we read was like the sauce Bible or the, a lot of textbook style recipes. The New York Times cookbook is where a lot of people were getting their ideas. Very few books with pretty pictures. But there was this series called Art Culinaire that would come out. I want to say it came out monthly. Anyway, I don't know. Someone's going to fact check me on that. But anyway, Art Culinaire would come out and it would have the most beautiful food pictures and it would showcase some of the hottest chefs at the moment. Again, if you go back and look at that, what we thought were beautiful pictures back then might not pass muster today. Times were different. So the learning was a little bit slower. So the techniques developed a little bit slower. You didn't have an opportunity to scroll on Instagram reels and see some of the best chefs teaching some of the best techniques in some of the world's best restaurants. Things were moving along a little slower. The place where I happened to be working, I saw the introduction of the human resources department. And this was an interesting time. Now, I know today a lot of independent restaurants can be the Wild West. So some of the things that I say might be arcane still might be normal practices today. But let's just assume we're working in a more professional industry. The GM of the hotel was usually the number one and the executive chef was usually the number two. So if the GM was on vacation, the chef was in charge of the whole hotel. A lot of places did not have food and beverage directors and the hierarchy was GM, executive chef, or food and beverage director and executive chef were equal. That started to evolve with time where in a lot of places, the food and beverage director became the boss. There's a legendary chef that used to run the CIA, certified master chef, Ferdinand Metz. And he and I, about 2010, we were judging auditions for Gordon Ramsay's master chef. And he told me a story that I thought was really interesting. He's telling me about the times when he was a, a young cook coming up. And he said, Andre, do you know why food and beverage directors exist in hotels? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, because back in the day, the chef was this temperamental character that if someone complained about the food and they wanted to speak to the chef, it wasn't a good thing that was going to happen. Chefs, obviously, big egos, egotistical. And so there had to be a buffer. And so they introduced the food and beverage director that was going to be the liaison between the people in the kitchen, the chef in the kitchen, and the diners in the restaurant so that there would be a little bit of finesse and that you wouldn't have a chef going out saying, you're going to eat it anyway, squeeze a little bit of lemon on it, and you're an idiot. So that was the introduction of the food and beverage director because the chefs were still, for lack of a better term, were still barbarians at that point. So he says to me, once we remember the history, because now chefs are well-spoken, they're the face, they like talking to guests. Once we remember this history, a lot of food and beverage directors may become obsolete. And you're starting to see that now where a lot of places run with what's called a chef and bee, meaning they're the chef slash food and beverage director, or the chef and the food and beverage director are equals, meaning the food and beverage director only oversees the service team and the executive chef only oversees the culinary team. Again, times were different. But back to this first job that I had. The executive chef, and I won't mention his name and I won't mention the place, but the executive chef was a European old school chef, older guy, probably in his 50s at that time. And we had just gotten a human resources manager. And he calls a staff meeting and he tells us in advance, the human resources manager is going to be here. I don't know why they want to be here. It's my meeting, but whatever. They have to watch since they're new. 
and we go into the meeting. And I, I remember, like, it, it's comical to me to look back at it because I was watching the end of an era in real time. The executive chef tells us, first order of business, there'll be zero overtime. So if you don't finish your work on time, you need to clock out and finish working. And the human resources director says, excuse me, chef. And he says, yeah, what? You can't do that. And he says, can't do what? You can't make them clock out and not pay them if they're still working. And he looked at this person and said, what? Anyway, and he moved on. He didn't understand, but I'm watching this. And I'm like, oh, there's like a, a car crash happening in real time. He says, next order of business. Everyone needs to take their break. And if you don't take your break, I'm going to take it out anyway. And the human resources director interjects again and says, excuse me. And he says, yes. And he says, you can't say that. And he says, say what? He says, you can't take out their break if they don't take a break. Now, this is happening in front of all the culinary department. And the chef says, but what do you mean? I'm the chef. And I just remember slunking down in my chair thinking, oh, he doesn't get it. Not long after that, he wasn't around. And so you started to see this emergence of the American chef pushing out a lot of that old European guard in a lot of hotels, country clubs, and independent restaurants. It was interesting for me to see it happen because I was coming in at the tail end of the European shop. Now, there's still shady owners out there that don't pay you and do terrible things like take out your meal breaks and all that. I, I know that still happens in the industry. It shouldn't happen, but it's not common practice. And I think the people that do that still know they're wrong. In the early days when I was coming up, they didn't know they were wrong. They just thought that's the way it was. There was nothing wrong about it. One of my chefs had told me a story about how different it was when he came up. He told me, and this was a very large kitchen, let's just say 100 cooks. Executive chef is the king. He says the executive chef would come in at a certain time every day. They would set up a table for the chef in the kitchen and the other chefs would feed them. So the chef would sit down with a glass of wine, middle of service, and also eat while the restaurant is open, just to make sure that he is also being fed. So again, times are different, overabundance of staff, executive chef, tall white hat, you know the picture, cravat, crisp, buttons black, maybe a flag on the lapel, crisp uniform, right? And he says the executive chef would have a lot of the cooks wear pink cravats, for those of you that don't know, the cravat is the necktie that you see a lot of chefs wear, like the traditional uniform. You see it a lot in culinary school still. A lot of the cooks back then would wear the pink cravat. And my chef told me the reason that they were wearing the pink cravat was because the chef knew that he didn't have to talk to them. So he would only talk to people with a white cravat. If they were wearing a pink cravat, they weren't even allowed to speak to the chef. They had to talk to someone who would talk to someone. Interesting times. And then when it was payday, again, Times were different. Everyone's getting paid in cash with an envelope. And so the chef would hand out the cash envelopes and people would walk up and he would take a certain percentage of the cook's pay out of the envelope because that was their rent in order to work in the chef's kitchen. They had to pay rent. Times were different. I didn't come up in that era, but I think it's wild to think about because that was only, I was only about 10 to 15 years removed from that coming in. So here I am coming up a cook and you're getting shift beers Depending on how many hours you would work in the day, they would give you a beer and some people would save them. Some people would put them in their locker and use them to trade with other cooks for whatever. But it wasn't out of the norm for people to get two or three shift beers during their shift. We used to joke and say, the 
the more beers you would have during service, the better the food would get towards the end of service. I'm not saying restaurants don't do that still. And I'm sure there's probably some chefs that have more than a shift beer. They might have a couple of shift vodkas. But like I said, this was just common. It wasn't even frowned upon like the, the GM. Every single person knew that this was happening and it was an encouraged practice. The way we get wellness days now was the way we got shift beers then. If you needed a mental health day? No, you just got a shift beer. That was your mental health. This is the time of the explosive chef. So when you watch an old show called Boiling Point with Gordon Ramsay and you see that anger in him, a lot of chefs were like that. That wasn't not common in those days. We fast forward a few years later and now we have myself being an executive chef. Human resources departments have now been in for about 10, 15 years. It's pretty normal. We're much more mindful of things. Kitchen environments are better, but they're not perfect. You still have a lot of what's called the ghost in the machine. A lot of those bad habits still exist because a lot of cooks now are older than me. They came from that era. So there's this blend of the old guard bleeding into cooks and chefs that are roughly my age. Keep in mind, I was a young executive chef. I had people that were reporting to me as an exec chef that may have been 10, 15 years older than me who remembered those old days and the shift beers and the paying rent to work in kitchens, wearing the pink necktie. And again, this wasn't every single kitchen, but it was a lot of kitchens. Now, when I was coming up as a chef towards the middle of my career, culinary schools were popping up everywhere. The Food Network explodes. Everyone has a culinary degree. I would get stacks of resumes and I would look through them and there would be nothing different about them and say, Le Cordon Bleu, Art Institute, whatever college they happened to come from, everyone had a culinary degree and it made you nothing special. Because you'd get hired in the kitchen, they'd say, well, I got a culinary degree. And I'd say, so does everyone else, except they also have a couple of years of experience on you. So times were changing. I used to sit on the board of a culinary school, I won't say which one, but I remember going and doing demos and talking to the students. And I looked around and I noticed that a large portion of the people that were in school were females. I would say it was almost 50% female. Now, keep in mind when I was coming up, there was very few females in the kitchen. And now all of a sudden I'm in culinary school and I'm noticing, this is about 2008 to 2010. I'm noticing that a large portion of the students are female. When I graduated culinary school, there was probably 50 people in my class with maybe about five females. Now I'm noticing that the ratio is about 50-50. And I remember thinking at that moment, in the next few years, we're gonna see the rise of the female chef. And I think you're seeing that today. You see a lot more female chefs, very talented ones too. Some of the best chefs in the world right now are female. Look at Claire Smith in London, Anne-Sophie Pick, Dominic Crenn, so many others. I'm just naming a few, but shout out to my friend, Tiffany Derry in Dallas, great female chef. One of my closest friends, Anastasia Quinones at Jose in Dallas, fantastic female chef. Anyway, there's a lot of fantastic female chefs. No sense in listing them all. You know who you are. And it's nice to see. It's nice to see that the industry is changing and evolving. We're not all cooking continental cuisine. We're not all working in country clubs and hotels. We're not all working under certified master chefs. And you don't need to become a certified master chef in order to have success. Social media is changing everything. People want to work with chefs who are big on social media, sometimes much more than chefs that are highly technical, right? Because if they don't have a social media presence, no one even knows who you are. I'm exaggerating, not that no one knows you are, but you understand. Take what I say with some nuance and a grain of salt. Anyway, I wanted to point that out because we talk about how different the industry is now. And I, I would tell you that there was a significant change in the industry from 
COVID 2020 to currently, you see a significant change in the industry and what we want. We no longer want shift beers. We want mental health days. We no longer only have Europeans running the kitchen. You have some great American chefs running kitchens, but also great international chefs that aren't European from Thailand, from India, and all sorts of backgrounds. The rise of the Mexican chefs. See what Enrique Olvera is doing and shout out to a lot of my friends who are doing great things with food like Gabe Morales here in Austin, Texas at Bacalar and Fermin Yunez and the whole taco mafia here in Austin. Times are changing. Where's it going? Is this the ship sinking? I don't know. Robots are coming in. Whataburger has an all robot restaurant. Apparently I haven't seen it. AI is coming in to alleviate a lot of the paperwork that chefs were doing, putting you back in the kitchen. And by the way, well, I'm going to get off subject here just for a minute. I've seen a lot of AI food pop up as fake restaurants and people commenting like, oh my God, this looks beautiful. Now, if you remember a while back, I posted a whole bunch of AI food pictures almost a year ago, it feels like just to show you what can be done. But then I never really saw anything of it again. And then now all of a sudden I'm seeing it and people claiming that it's their own, but it's fake. And I hope Y'all are not getting fooled by AI food. I had a very good chef friend of mine DM me an image of some AI food and everyone commenting about how beautiful it looks. And he says, who's going to tell them? I, I think I just commented a robot face on that picture, but it got taken down. They don't want to get caught. But anyway, that's why you listen to Chef's PSA because I'm going to tell you the real and I'm going to keep you awake and ready to notice when someone's trying to fool you. Anyway, rant over. Like I said, I had I have no solutions today. I just wanted to point out a little bit of context as we talk about where the industry was and where it's headed. My crystal ball tells me that in terms of food trends, most likely we're headed to a very individual and unique expression of food. So it's, it's no longer that continental cuisine. It's food that I feel like expressing for me for whatever reason. Maybe it's the town I'm from. Maybe it's the food I grew up with. Whatever it is, it's yours. It's unique. It's your own identity on a plate. You're starting to see more of that. Kitchen culture is changing and people have to adapt. I think the one thing that won't ever change is that kitchens are still hard. You still have to stand up all day. You still have to cook. Customers still got to get fed. The restaurant still has small margins. The rush is still going to come. It's still going to be chaotic. People are still going to get to ring in orders and then the kitchen's going to get slammed because the server pocketed the tickets. Those things don't change. But how we handle those things is changing. Anyway, where's it going? Let me know in the comments. If you're watching... On YouTube, make sure you hit the like button, subscribe, comment. If you're on Spotify, make sure you leave five stars. Nothing less than five stars. Five-star podcast, we all know this. If you haven't left five stars, stop what you're doing. Do that right now. It means a lot. Go to chefspsa.com. You get all the merch, all the books. Go check me out. I'm now on Facebook. Go follow on X, TikTok, Instagram. I will see you all next week. Have a great week. Hit the porno music.